Welcome to another episode of the WBT, Rathbearing Trees podcast. From Rathbearing Tree, we have myself, Adrian Bonnenberger, a co-editor, and Professor Jennifer Orthvillian, a board member, educator, writer, and the editor of the World War I Rights Project. Today, we're joined by Professor Connie Rusick, who teaches English literature at Robert Morris University and is, among other things, an expert on poetry from the First World War. Connie is the author of the book, International Poetry of the First World War, an anthology of lost voices, which covers traditionally overlooked poets. The three of us are going to talk about what else, given Connie and Jennifer's expertise, poets and poetry of World War I that you probably missed. I know I had. Connie, would you like to get us started by telling us a little more about your project, the book, and why the subject is interesting to you? Sure, thanks so much for having me. Um, the book actually didn't start, I didn't know I was going to write this book. I was awarded a Fulbright to study uh, the ways in which the British were using poetry in the commemorations of the First World War. That was in the fall of 2014. And while I was there, I visited a lot of secondhand bookstores and started noticing an awful lot of very dusty, tattered copies of poetry printed um, during the war from 1914, 15, 16, 17. And they were going for a song. You could pick them up for a pound or two. And um, I started reading them and finding them to be really interesting, um, both for what they had to offer in terms of insights to the war, but also about the ways in which they'd been lost and missed. And not, not, the poems had not been republished in later anthologies. Um, I was at the time also just trying to keep track of what um, my research was while I was on the Fulbright by sharing things back at home um, with a non-academic audience through a blog. So I had already set up the blog behind their lines and um, because I knew I was going to be looking at poetry, I just thought it would be the well-known poets. Um, and very quickly it morphed into sharing um, these strange forgotten poems. And I say strange because um, they, they do differ from the poetry of um, the canonical poets such as Wilfred Owen, Siegfried Sassoon, who um, were almost all male combat poets who wrote in protest of the war. Um, so I was, I, I took this sort of, I, I just couldn't care deeply about these poems, oftentimes written by soldiers as well as um, women on the home front and men on the home front and women on the front lines. And um, by the time I had finished the Fulbright, I, I took this kind of silly vow um, in which I said, I'm going to write a blog post once a week and share a poem from now until the end of the centenary. And um, so I was posting um, a new poem a week with some commentary and started getting some comments from people that this would make a good book. And so from there, um, I realized that I had also wandered into international poems, um, largely because um, of, I was really interested when I got home in what Americans had written that had been forgotten, but then French, German, um, poets from India, South Africa, um, I think there's 14 nations currently in the anthology. Um, I had met Jennifer while I was uh, working on some of this and uh, was, she was, she and I had a great mutual interest because she was um, going ahead and curating the World War I centenary uh, poetry blog, right? And she was doing wonderful things of making connections. So actually I should, Jennifer, to you. 
Well, thank you also for having me today. And it's just an honor to be on here with, uh, with the venerable Connie Ruzik. When I set up my blog, which is WWWrite, uh, which was a blog uh, trying to explore the influence of World War I uh, with, uh, in contemporary scholarship and writing on war. And um, I, I wanted to do something that would highlight um, a sort of the forgotten voices of World War I. Um, but I also wanted to um, highlight uh, at the same time, unheard voices from contemporary wars today and, and heard voices. And so I thought that would be an interesting way to present something new and fresh about, about World War I. Uh, and so along the way, uh, I met an, an incredible, uh, incredible writers and thinkers uh, and scholars uh, who were all engaged in this process about uh, writing about World War I, remembering World War I, um, trying to figure out the place of World War I in um, contemporary writing and scholarship and, and contemporary collective culture. And, um, and I stumbled upon Connie uh, and I was like, wow, this is exactly what I wish I could have done. It's a much better blog than I could have ever thought of, but it was amazing. And uh, so she was very kind to pass on a few pieces from her blog to, to my blog. We did some blog swapping. And uh, yeah, she, she, I think she published five or six, uh, she had five or six articles uh, of some, from her blog that appeared on WWWrite. And I think there was even an exclusive one as well. I'm not sure if there was, they were all shared with um, behind their lines, but her poems added incredible. Uh, I knew that Connie, if there was, some, it was a, if there was an aspect I hadn't explored on WWRate, I knew I just had to call Connie and say, okay, um, you have anything on like airmen? She's like, oh yes, <laughs> I have like many, or uh, do you have something on, you know, African-American nurses or Indian soldiers or, or something? And always she she, oh, she knew everything. Uh, she, she, she was. In, she, she is an invaluable resource on unheard, forgotten, or less known uh, works on World War One. One of the things that jumped out to me about these poems, taking a step back, and I'll we could talk about how we selected the poems in a moment. Is yeah, sort of like you were saying, the variety of them, but but not the variety in terms of. The diversity of the authors or their perspectives, but the implicit variety of, you know, of cultures and experiences. I think the first time I, I questioned my understanding of World War One historically was was when I was living in Ukraine, because they have not just you know a, a different they have multiple different perspectives on World War One depending on where you are in Ukraine part of Ukraine ended up in Poland after World War I and another part ended up in the USSR. Um, and so World War I had massive uh, consequences for Ukrainians. But then just the very fact that there were these other perspectives when you know my, my knowledge of World War I was that white male combat veteran written experience, which is you know, canonical, that's part of the canon, is you read certain poems and that's your understanding of World War I. And it's, a, it's really a British experience of World War I, a British infantry officer's experience of World War I. How did you both come to, to see that, that diversity? If, if it isn't just the, it might've been the, the process of being, walking into bookstores and, and finding actual books. Um, I think that 
for me, one of the, like you said, because I'm a professor of English literature, I didn't know the American experience of World War I nearly as well as I knew the British, because um, there's been an awful lot written by British historians that criticizes the heavy reliance on British soldier poets like Sassoon and Owen, because they say that is taken as history. And, and definitely, I think, from a world perspective, um, Sassoon and Owen's views of the war, their bravery coupled with their protest of it, their being set on the Western Front, as opposed to many of the other places that the war was fought, means that it is a shorthand to like, well, that's what the war was about. So for me, um, a lot of, like you, uh, a lot of my broadening of senses was international voices. So for example, reading the Russian poet um, Anna Akhmatova or, or reading um, uh, Australian poets who were writing about Gallipoli or writing Austro-Hungarian poets who were writing about the Eastern Front. It was also really interesting to come back. I had heard a lot while I was in the UK and they're understandably proud of their poetry especially their war poetry. And um, the saying was, while I was studying the poetry of the First World War, that if the war had been fought on the pages of poems, the British would have won it by Christmas. Um, that they essentially just arguing that no one has better war poetry than they do. And yet, while I was in England, it was a, a, a British professor, Tim Kendall, who wrote the um, anthology of uh, the Cambridge, I'm sorry, the Oxford publication um, on war poetry. He asked me if I knew of John Allen Wyeth and I was embarrassed as an American to say I'd never heard of him. And that sort of started out, well, and, and he pretty much said he is um, the poet who is stands um, uh, equivalent to many of the British poets. He's um, really a powerful poet. Um, there was, it was that sort of thing or finding Mary Borden, the American from Chicago who married a British man and then served in France and Belgium. Her poems are powerful. And I thought at that point, there's ways that people from England were studying American poets and not fully grasping even the Americanness of them because they weren't Americans. Um, and, and so that, that became interesting to me. Uh, the other thing, just because circling back to that question, what struck you as diverse perspectives, there is that well-known sort of idea that Everything, Paul Fussell talks about everything being ironic after the First World War. There's the idea that the First World War killed God and that no one could really believe in anything anymore, almost a nihilistic viewpoint that came out after the war. And I was finding written in, right up in 1918 by soldiers um, and after the war by others, um, this hopeful view that it really had been fought for something or that there was something to take from it and also very often poems that alluded to religion. In fact, they, I was surprised to find that the best-selling poet of the war in England um, was uh, John Oxenham, um, uh, who wrote very religious poems. Um, and the best-selling single poem in a pamphlet form was Christ in Flanders by Lucy Whitmall. So they were popular at the time. Um, and, and that was um, something that I was really surprised to learn. Thank you, Connie. You introduced me to so many poets, including Wyeth. My experience was similar to yours. I entered um, when I was uh, a long time ago in 1990, no, 2000 and 2003. Um, I had the opportunity, I was living in Paris in graduate school 
and my an undergraduate professor uh, who's on the um, historical board of World War, the World War I uh, Centennial Commission, um, Dr. Mark Facknitz, he asked if I wanted to be a, a TA on a summer abroad, semi-summer study abroad program uh, that took place in France, England, and Belgium. And um, the, the project sounded really interesting. I'd never heard of a class conducted this way before, but it was a class that was reading text and in tandem visiting memorials and producing sort of writing and, and reflections um, about reading poetry in, in the place where things happen. So a very strong relationship between the land, memorials and, and the text. And I, I like you, I was like, oh yeah, I love Owen, right? Fussell as well, his theories, I, I was, uh, was fascinated by those. I had also been studying World War I in the graduate school to some degree. And um, so that's how I went into this trip uh, myself. And so that's, that's kind of how the trip was organized. First, we, we hit the big memorials, like we went to Bellow Wood, you know, and there's that big Marine um, memorial, lots of history. And so it was this really big sort of memorial. I went in, that was the first sort of layer of the trip. And then as we went on, we started visiting um, French cemeteries and French memorials. And then we started visiting like these, all these different private ways, especially in the Northeast of France. There are people who in their houses that have World War I memorials or World War I museums and, or uh, going to the Canadian Memorial um, at Vimy Ridge. I mean, it's, it's, it was incredible for me to see like through the memorials were telling the same story that you were telling the, the story of like the, the experience of the World War I soldier was much more than this canonical experience that we get with reading British poems uh, by those canon canonical poets. So um, yeah, my experience was similar, but I kind of did it through this, this class in which I kept peeled away layers of commemoration to find this diversity of voices, women. I mean, incredible. It was a nurses' memorial. I mean, just incredible. Um, we, we learned about um, these American women who came over to rebuild uh, World War uh, France after World War One. Incredible stories. So I, like you, I just uh, feel I felt sort of an injustice that these stories are not heard. And then the World War One centennial was obviously a time to do that. I'm going to just jump in and say I I want I I hope that it isn't sounding as if. Um, I am devaluing the canonical poets. Um, in fact, in, in my anthology, I write that um, the current anthology is not intended to supplant nor even to challenge uh, the value of the pre previous anthologies of their works, but rather to supplement it and to be read alongside of it. I, I like to think of these forgotten voices not as better than or replacing, um, I would never make those arguments, uh, the canonical um, poems of the First World War, but rather expanding the canon um, to increase um, um, both um, that the variety of perspectives and a depth of understanding of how the war was experienced. And I, I have the same thing to say. I'm not, in no way am I, I love those poems. In fact, that's how what drew me into World War I uh, in the first place was the, these poems and, and of course modernism uh, and the link with modernism. Uh, but, and, but right, I agree with you. And I would have never discovered the other things if I hadn't gone through these works, which remain very important works um, on their own. Well, I'm all about challenging the canon and testing it and finding the those weak parts of the canon that can or ought to be replaced. This is a process that is, as you both know, as, as uh, professional educators has been going on for, in writing over 2000 years and probably around the, around the fire even longer than that, which is how we came up with the Iliad and the Odyssey, a great part of the canon, a foundation of the canon that who knows how many 
changes, additions, deletions occurred in the hundreds of years between the events and when, uh, when it was finally put down in writing. Many, many, I'm sure. And um, we've only had a hundred years uh, since, a little over a hundred years since uh, World War I. So with that, let's, let's talk about the poems that we read. Connie, do you wanna talk a little bit about um, the poems that you picked and why you picked them? Well, that would be an interesting question because I kind of had the sense that this was a, a committee kind of picked them and we were back and forth and how many. And when you first asked me, it's like children that we were like, you can't ask me to pick a favorite. Can we read these 400 poems? And that that wasn't possible. I think what we decided, one of the things is, is that we were gonna look at American poetry of the First World War and particularly those uh, forgotten American poets. So John Allen Wyeth, who is getting critical attention now, was somebody that we felt we needed to read some of his work. The volume was published in 1929. It's his only volume of poetry. Um, it's got a wonderful title. It's called This Man's Army, A War in 50 Odd Sonnets, um, with all kinds of plays on that one. As well, we decided we'd look at Mary Borden. Um, she actually is included in Poetry of the First World War, Tim Kendall's anthology of British poetry because um, he's claiming her as British given her marriage to um, two British men. And then I, I said, um, I really wanted Alice Dunbar Nelson's poem, Sit and Sew, which may be a familiar poem, but oftentimes is not read as a war poem. And Jennifer, I think you suggested uh, Joseph Seaman Cotter. So I'll let you talk. Yes, about I did. That. Me first, then. About or your... just you can talk about why you chose Cotter. I mean, there was so because there were so many interesting African American poems that we don't know about, um, and writers um, writing about African American participation in the World War, such as Sterling Brown, well after the war. So um, I, I really liked your choice of Cotter, and I, I wondered if you could just talk about why. Um, he stood out to you. He stood out to me because um, he encompasses, it's so interesting, he encompasses so much history in the poem. Like he says, what do he say? We are the war and we are not the war. I think that's really interesting because he's saying that uh, we can talk about war and we can, and we can write about war, but there are a lot of things that go into this history that are not war, right? Where there's the combat and there's the fighting in the trenches, right? But there's also all the other things um, that go into writing about war. We are the war, we are not the war. So I think I always think about all those voices that were, were lost. Um, but I also think he does something really interesting is that he um, makes a ties with other historical events that happened during World War War that were pretty significant and somewhat forgotten. Um, he makes a reference to the Armenians uh, and the Armenian genocide. He makes a reference to, he makes a reference, you know, to Jews being persecuted in biblical times. And he really, he just draws together so many historical points that are all related to, to World War One that are part of the war and they're not a part of the war. But so I think that that was one of the things, the one, the line that I think was the most interesting. I am so glad you chose Cotter because, and I was really helpful to hear you talk about that because I, I, I have talked about Cotter and I feel people aren't just picking up on how important a poet he was. And so I, I was, thanks for sharing that. Like, like you said, what he does, his only volume or his war poetry volume, only one was called um, Band of Gideon. He died young, he died in 1919 of tuberculosis. Um, in fact, the book was published, um, I think posthumously 
and his father promoted it. His dad was um, a playwright. Um, Cotter's better known actually for um, this one act play he did called On the Field of Flanders, which is, um, if anyone's looking for just sort of interesting one act plays in the First World War, it's a white and a black American soldier who are dying together in no man's land and realize that why on earth have they been enemies back home. But what Cotter does is he really um, he's seen now as, as, it's funny, his favorite poem, one of his favorites, his father said, was John Keats. And he had a sense with tuberculosis like Keats that he would not live a long life. So he's writing frantically during the war to try and get things out. And as Jennifer said, there's this really synthetic imagination in his war poetry. Um, the one Jennifer's talking is, Oh Little David, Play on Your Harp, which starts with this um, African-American spiritual um, about David playing to calm Saul and to bring peace. Um, and yet Cotter's a different poet and that unlike many of the other African-American poets um, previously, um, he's seen as a forerunner of the Harlem Renaissance. He doesn't use dialect. It's a pretty straight up poem. And he's writing here about the seething world gone stark mad, gorged with the flesh, blinded with the ashes of her millions of dead, but he doesn't leave the dead just to the soldiers. He says, there's a monster in the guise of man. He is of war and not of war, born in peace. And he goes on, as she said, to talk about the Armenians and the Jews who are um, being persecuted and killed in the Russian uh, exterminations. And then it, it's really about prejudice. It's really about the ways in which people are killing people for being different and for being other. And it's just a, uh, his last line, he says, and in every land are black folks scourged, their only crime that they dare be men. Um, it's just a, it, it's a powerful poem. That poem and then Borden's poem, The Song of Mud, they both struck me as personifying war, or, or the calamity that was happening in a way that feels very familiar to me now, but is not something, it's something that movies, contemporary movies have picked up on, but I, I think was occupied a different imaginative space back then, probably because in, you know, of the use of allegory <clears throat> and, uh, and just the way that people thought. An idea that moves about almost in human form causing mischief or causing evil. And it's, it's mud, this sort of like ravenous mud in the Borden poem. And in the Cotter poem, it's this man, not man. And uh, really kind of horrifying stuff. There were, there were almost more like horror poems, which isn't a genre than, um, than war poems. Borden's poem is fascinating, Song of the Mud, because like you said, there's this way in which the first time I read it, um, and it is like a, a horror movie experience in which there's such surreal weirdness mixed in with comedy. So for example, she, as you said, personifies the mud. In one way, it's inanimate. She describes it, it's spread like enamel or it covers the hills like satin. So it's this beautiful thing. And then she goes ahead and treats it like a child. It's frothing and squirting and spurting and gurgling. And then it becomes sort of strained when it becomes thick and elastic. And, and suddenly, um, as she's talking about it, it has... Um, it is a slimy, inveterate nuisance. It sucks the guns down. Um, and then it becomes sort of sexualized and it's got uh, uh, lips and mouths and it's swallowing men. 
there have been um, critical reviews written about this poem that says um, mud is working as um, a uh, symbol of female desire, both disturbing and repulsive, as well as very sexual and, and powerful. The, the poem, for me, what is interesting is she is completely riffing on Walt Whitman. It is, um, the Song of the Mud is Whitman's Song of Myself, only that's so celebratory um, about singing myself and celebrating myself. And this is about the, the mud that is swallowing up our fine men and it is, uh, it's dark and it's silent and, and, um, and yet it is, um, it is clothing the soldiers who wear the chic of the mud. Um, and it's, it's a fashion statement in some ways. Um, it's just such a, I think what Borden does as well as anyone is create, and it's, it's uncomfortable perhaps, is this detached observer perspective where she's watching it all and she isn't really protesting it or celebrating it. She's just recording it. I agree, like the mud is this kind of like this, this, this thing flowing, right? And it's, it's got pieces of everything in it and it's, it's hiding things and, they, and then things come out and there's personality and then there's, and it's dead. And maybe think uh, when you were saying this about another blog post uh, written by um, a WBT editor, Rachel Cambry, she wrote about um, the dead marshes and Tolkien and how he was influenced by, the, or so she writes in her, or I think she writes, so please forgive me, Rachel, if I'm not, but she was saying how where he was influenced, this came from, right, this mud, right, this mud uh, full of, that had, you know, it had faces, dead faces that disappeared, that came out, uh, that spoke, uh, right, and so I think this, that Borden is, is reflecting upon something that was probably very common to all, a vision that many of them had of this mud, right, uh, I mean, I don't know how many poems I've read about World War I and mud and also World War II and mud, right? This, the, the mud is, uh, we can't begin to comprehend um, the anguish that mud caused, right? Fighting back the mud, I mean, trench foot, all of these injuries and these diseases that were associated with mud and it was, it was wet and terrible and, and was just, yeah, ever present, right? So, right, what, how better to deal with that than to kind of associate it with, you know, a person, give it a personality. They were fighting against it. And that's that's true whether you saw a lot of combat or no combat at all because it was it was everywhere and I mean that's that's something that features in Vietnam poetry and Vietnam literature. I haven't seen too much of it in Iraq or Afghanistan, but it's probably there too. I've, I certainly patrolled in mud, but I wouldn't say that that you know characterized my experience to the extent that it did World War One soldiers and officers and. Yeah, both the Borden and the Cotter poems for that reason seem to me to be thinking big and writing big. I, I mean, all of the poems think big and, and have great ambitions, but they look in different places for it. Another thing that I saw, and I, I hope this is a, an effective transition here, might not be, thinking specifically about, you know, big thoughts or small thoughts or, or, or big poems or small poems having big thoughts in them. I was also surprised by, you know, there a couple of the poems had had to do with picnics. And then one of the Wyeth, I may be mis mispronouncing that, Wyeth poems is about, uh, it's called The Transport and takes part in a transport ship. And my feeling was that some of these other poems really focus in on a particular moment or particular experience. I, I sit and sew being another one of those. And so you're there doing a very specific thing. And that's when the like the profound impact of 
of the experience of the war hits you, whether you're at the war or not, which is a different way to interact with the war from imagining it as the mud or imagining it as, you know, all of the nations imagined or all of the each of the peoples struggling in their particular way uh, for freedom or for, you know, against oppression, against the lash. Well, you, you, you've caught something really interesting about Wyatt's poetry. His 50 odd sonnets published in 1929, most people believe that they weren't written until probably 28, 29, and that um, he was writing them from um, very detailed uh, journals and notes he had taken during the war. And the reasons for that is one of the uh, scholars, B.J. Omenson, has gone ahead and dated all of Wyeth's each of the 50 odd sonnets to say this is where they were, that's where they were, this is where they were. They are chronological through the war. They are each small moments um, of literally like snapshots, almost photographic in that way. And as well, I'm waiting to write them until 1929. Most people believe that it's well, he's in Italy, um, living um, very near um, and um, striking up a friendship with Ezra Pound. So that these are a really different kind of, um, they have much more tinged with modernism perhaps than had he written them during the war. But the poem, The Transport is in, in all of Wyeth's poetry, I just get this sense again of detachment, um, of standing apart and of, of great loneliness. Um, he's watching everyone else on the ship who is, uh, there's a, a band playing, there's a jazz band. He says, we crowd like minnows at a muddy stream. You think about how crowded those ships were going overseas and how these men, people have said that he writes about the cultural dislocation of the American Expeditionary Force, that they're all going someplace that they've never most of them been before and have no way of really understanding. And they're going with others from America who are from places they've never been before. And in all of this, this very crowded kind of thing, he is, he's, he's comes aboard deck and says that um, he's looking out at the sea. And he says, and like the vast possession of a dream, that black ship and the pale sky's emptiness and this great wind become a part of me. He's always sort of standing apart, it seems. Um, and I find that to be one of the fascinating things about his poetry. His biographer, uh, or in the introduction to the republication of his poem, says that um, this was seems to have been a pattern throughout his life. He was, um, when he was at Princeton, he was a, a college educated man. He was one of the odd people who never had um, a roommate. Um, there was sort of code words about, uh, he joined no teams or clubs. Um, he was described as the only aesthete of the class of 1915, and it says that the remark obviously described his passionate interest in the arts on a campus not conspicuous for its cultural enthusiasms, but he was almost all, also certainly a homosexual. And what's interesting is the same biographer says that he does this very strange thing um, between the wars. He takes up landscape painting and is, and is doing a lot of landscape painting outside of Birch's Garden. He does not approve of the fascists, um, the, the speculation is, is that who better to serve as a spy for the British than an American homosexual who'd have known how to keep secrets and how to, be, how to st stay very much apart. Um, so his, his biography is fascinating as well. But that sense of he really 
he reinvents the sonnet. He gives it um, new rhyme schemes. And uh, uh, his poem, Picnic, as you say, what an odd thing to write about in war. But it's such an interesting thing. He can juxtapose what it is like to be, he, in the poem, the short sonnet, he's driving with um, an officer through where a battle has raged probably about a week before. And, um, and he's talking about uh, the men long since dead reached out and left a smirch and taste in our throats like gas and rotten jam. But the other officer is offering him lunch. And he says, do you want any more? And he says, yes, sir, if you got enough there. And then the line, those fellows seem pretty strong. I'll say they do, but I'm too hungry, sir, to care a damn. And it's that sense of the things that you will do and the ways in which the abnormal becomes what you have to do to get through war um, that Wyeth just captures in these small moments, these universal truths. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, what Connie does in her, her, what she's done in her blog and what she's done in her anthology is that she has sort of thematically organized all of these poems into, you know, various experiences of the World War I soldier. For example, isolation, the trenches, right? And so I think that's really valuable in her collection is that um, she really organizes it by soldier experience and the variety of ways that soldiers and also the poets are dealing with war. And this particular poem um, that Wyeth writes about the picnic, right? We, we see that, um, yeah, we see that irony uh, that that the the acceptance of the grotesque, um, and I and I think this is something the things that Connie highlights in these World War One poems, which is so interesting, are, are things that I can we can see in poetry today by soldiers. Very similar experiences that I, I mean I I notice in poetry that I read today. Um, you know the grotesque becoming normal, a sense of isolation. Um, I think Wyeth also, and I think this is a common thing that I've read in these poems and in other poems is. Um, the togetherness that you, you're part of, you're, you've kind of lost your identity as a soldier, right? You're, you're representing a country, you're fighting, you're fighting. But what you remember most, right? Um, and the, at least in the case of the poets is you remember those moments of stillness where you're alone. When you have that time to just, oh, take it all in. I'm, I'm here, right? I'm affirming my, my existence in this, this place and time. And that's really what I'm writing about in, in a sense. Um, and I think why it's so, it's so beautiful, right? A vast possession of a dream and, um, and uh, I, I think that's that can only be said of when, in in these kind of moments, contemplating a sky and nature. And I, that was one of the things when I was visiting all these places um, in eastern France. Um, how bucolic and beautiful, even um, obviously it, it had been there were memorials, but that was the thing that struck me. And one of the things when I was visiting there, I thought, well, I wonder if during these battles, just like there was this these moments that these soldiers had where they were like, wow, that's a beautiful tree. In the middle of something or, or you know and the, the understanding that is an incredible right whiplash in sort of ways just to follow up on that mary borden we're talking about her as a poet but um she is also a memoirist when she writes the forbidden zone it's, it's largely essays and it's fascinating jennifer in the way in which um, for many people that natural um landscape provides some sort of imaginative release um, but in one of her sketches called Moonlight, she talks about how the most horrible thing is the whispering of the grass and the scent of new mown hay that makes me nervous because she says the war is the world. I'm used to it. And that it's the sound of nature that is absolutely terrifying because she says um, 
the, uh, the echo goes growling down the valley. And again, the trees and grasses begin murmuring and whispering. They are lying. It's a lie they are saying. There are no lovely forgotten things. The other world was a dream. Beyond the gauze curtains of the tender night, there is war. There is war on the earth, nothing but war. So at times it's just terrifying to think that you could lose yourself in that beauty when you have to stay in this surreal world of horror and keep your wits about you if you're going to live. And, and as Jennifer said, we see that so often today in contemporary war poets um, sort of working through these same kinds of ideas. Yeah, and I think um, when you talk about this, I, just, I think about if we want a, a visual uh, representation of that, um, for me, the best example is Terrence, Terrence uh, Malick's film, um, The Thin Red Line. In that film, right, there are all these moments where you see, that you kind of see, it's kind of filmed from the social's point of view, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a terrible war scene. All of a sudden we stop and it's like, we see the grass like waving, the leaves rustling or the bugs mating, like all these things, right? The, right this idea that they, there's also that nature is, in large part ignorant of what's going on, right? It's, there's, there's destruction, but like this, this natural, this landscape has a life of its own in some way, which is, seems so strange that it could live outside of what was going on in the war zone. Of course, to follow up on that, you've got another great American war poem that isn't oftentimes known as one, but Sarah Teasdale's There Will Come yeah. Soft Rains. And of course, yeah. um, the title is used by Ray Bradbury later on, but Teasdale is writing about the landscape of the First World War. I really appreciated that you included Rose Macaulay's poem, Picnic 1917, because I feel that that's the flip side of what we were just talking about. That is being a civilian, hearing the guns booming over in France and having become used to that as a civilian and not wanting the truth of that to intrude. So it's if the experience of the soldier is not to want the truth of the natural world or beauty to intrude on one's lived experience of the mud. The experience of the civilian is to not want the truth or the reality of the war to intrude on a pleasant summertime picnic on the seashore. And both of those groups are being very, it's not that the civilian is like, I don't want to know about this. The, uh, I think it's the final stanza where she talks about how this is the only way <laughs> to, you know, to get through the knowledge of this terrible thing that's happening, you know, without driving oneself nuts. I really enjoyed that poem because it, especially the way it's ordered, that part of it doesn't come until the very end. That is the final stanza where she's like, if the walls are battered down by the, the noise of these booming cannon, there, there will be nothing left. And I, I do think that that's, when you're in a conflict, of course, one needs to think and do those things that are necessary to get from minute to minute and hour and hour and day to day. The same is true too for a nation that's at war, you know, for other people, you know, who have friends or relatives who, who are deployed. It, it really is a thing that encompasses all of us. So again, I really appreciated the picnic July, 1917. It's a, it's a fascinating poem to put, as you said, against Wyeth. Um, Macaulay is a British writer, but it just seemed something you, we needed to look at if we were gonna talk about picnics during the war, because as you said, she's a civilian and they're lying there and they can hear the guns even over in England, but they have built purposefully what she calls guarding walls. 
um, the sort of putting up walls so we don't have to think about it. She says, we are shut about by guarding walls. We have built them lest we run mad from dreaming of naked fear and of black things done. And, and she talks about, we'll lie quite still, nor listen, nor look while the earth bounds reel and shake, lest bettered too long our walls and we should break, should break. That sense of just having to stay still, that there's such fragility that if we move, the illusion of things being okay will be shattered. Um, I think that there's an awful lot of of this poem that resonates with the pandemic. I've taught this poem with my students um, last term and they talked about compassion fatigue and the way in which you just can't look at any more people dying. You can't look at the case numbers once they get too high and that you just sort of hold yourself together and don't think about things. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's a powerful sort of poem to put, um, uh, to juxtapose with Wyeth's. Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm so glad you said that. And now that I think about it, we should have, we should have concluded a poem about the Spanish flu, obviously, because it was such a, another horrible, right, event. And that, like, can you imagine we going through, I was thinking about that in, um, today, uh, about in France, how, uh, you know, I was thinking they went through four years of war on their soil, and then boom, they had two years of a pandemic. I mean, can, I can't imagine going through um, this pandemic, uh, or this pandemic being preceded by uh, a a world war on, on my in my country. I wish we had, but maybe that'll be next time. But I agree with you um, that that there is this, um, I had this exact same, when I read that was the very first thing I thought of it. I was like, the other day we are in, well in France, but there, all the restaurants are closed, all the bars are closed. We, there's a national curfew at six o'clock. So you really, now that there's nice weather, it's just really one option, right? Picnic. Um, and so we, I got together with some friends and I had this moment and I, we all kind of, had, we said the same thing that we were all trying to forget that we were in the middle of this, like, and we were all trying to, to pretend like everything was normal, but like in that poem, you, you can hear it. You can, if you just stay silent for it, you hear like the screams, right? The, even you, you build up the walls, but you, when you, if you stay silent, it's, it's there, right? You can't, you can't get rid of it. Um, and I think this is, um, this is a reflection about, right? I think also about, um, in extending after the war about you know post-traumatic stress syndrome for not just soldiers but for the country right to always have this um thing that's going to be there right and the question is what do we do now when it's over right what do we do with that thing right what is it going to become is it going to be the thing knocking or are we going to bring it out in the open and and address it somehow and by the way i want to say that terence malick film was about world war ii i just want to make that clear that film is not about world war one but about world war ii Thin Red Line is among my favorite war films. It's the top three, indisputably, and as, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, um, me too. <laughs> but one of the reasons we might be a little bit cagey about talking about the civilian experience of war and wanting to keep the war at arm's length is that there is a sense or perception that that's somehow dishonorable or irresponsible that like, well, the civilians voted for the war to happen or somehow civilians should be implicated in the way that soldiers are. But speaking personally, you know, as a veteran, just the past couple of weeks, it occurred to me that next week, a week from today will be the one, the 10 year anniversary of my leaving Afghanistan. I've been out of war for 10 years, for 10 years to the day. It won't have affected me personally directly at all and this past weekend, I was like overwhelmed. I really just couldn't stop thinking about these various battles that I've been a part of. 
And the way through that and the way beyond it is to put walls up, honestly. It's like, that was, that was, I, that was only feasible for me because it was the weekend and I you know, didn't have to do any work. I, I couldn't imagine, you know, if that was every day, if you were grappling with the minutia of what's happening in the world yourself uh, or, or the community that you're a part of all the time, you know, you, you would become overwhelmed and you would become paralyzed. Now, it is important to think about some of that stuff. It's, it's important to be aware of it. It's important not to, to build the walls so high or thick that you can't hear anything and that you're, you know, you become, it's, it's, you become ignorant of it. But I do think it's, you know, that was one of the reasons, again, that I really appreciated the poem that I was like, yeah, you know, like those, the walls can come down and like, there's a real cost to that. I was really glad that that um, was represented there. And another point I wanted to make really quickly on that is that the other poem, so if thematically the picnic poem of Macaulay and the picnic poem of Wyeth are connected, I think thematically the strongest connection to Picnic July 1917 is Wyeth's Night Watch, only because there is that, he, there he is, it's still in bed. He's about to go on watch. It's not clear whether he's late for it or not, but. You, you realize over the course of the, the, the poem that his eyes are shut. So at the same time that he is supposed to be looking out and there's a connection between his posting watch, looking out and, and keeping France free and keeping the world together on a certain level. He's also actually just imagining this because his eyes are closed. He's, he's seeing this in the back of his eyelids. I just thought about that you know, uh, the, the, the strength of imagination, that to me really recalled those walls again, like the power of faith and the power of belief in the thing that was being done, which is done by individuals. Um, and regardless of the, the, the utility of it on a practical level, on a physical level, you know, how important that is to that individual in bed still at that moment. That's something that everybody has done. You know, everybody has, has has, has lain in bed imagining about the, the you know, this, the effort of will, the strength that it, that it takes to, to keep one's world together. As I was waiting to hear what poem you were going to say had the greatest thematic connection, when you said Wyeth, it made perfect sense, but I thought you were going to talk about Alice Dunbar Nelson's poem. And the reason is, is that so many of the things we've looked at talk about the various ways in which in war and trauma, whether as civilians or people fighting on the front lines, you have to try to keep it together. That control is completely an illusion. You have no control. You, you don't know where you are. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what you've been ordered to do. You don't know what's going on at the front. You don't know what's happening with your loved ones, but you have to pretend that you know and you're in control. And in Dunbar's uh, Dunbar Nelson's poem, I Sit and Sew, she, her lack of control is quite different. She is sitting and sewing. She's being very meticulous with this needle in and out of the cloth. But what she's imagining is the war. And she's imagining um, the grim faced, stern eyed people uh, who are uh, the pageant, uh, the fiercely pouring fire on wasted fields. So she's picturing those flamethrowers. She's picturing writhing, grotesque things, once men. And what bothers her um, is that she wants to go to help. 
and she has not been allowed to do so. And um, this poem is oftentimes seen as a feminist poem of women who just can't do things that men can. And what everyone misses is the World War I context, specifically the historical context in the United States. Um, Dunbar Nelson and many other women, um, black women, volunteered to go overseas, um, particularly trained nurses and they were not allowed to do so. The US Army Surgeon General refused the service of black nurses because that there are no separate quarters available for them and it is deemed not advisable to assign white and colored nurses to the same post. And the black community was horrified by this because they knew that if there were not black nurses overseas, that white nurses would not touch the bodies of black men and that they would die at disproportionate rates and they did. And so this is a woman who desperately is wanting to take control and to um, participate in the war effort and to touch those writhing grotesque things once men and to bring healing and the US government is saying you can't go. I was gonna say the same thing, there's the picnic poem, right? But the, where they're imagining, um, you know, she can't get the, the war out of their, they can't get the war out of their heads. And then Dunbar's poem, I was gonna say are very two different um, versions of, I think maybe the civilian experience in, in war, which is right, one is, you know, not being able to just, you know, somehow not being able to shut it out, not being able to live our lives. Um, and then also this, this frustration about not being able to do anything about it too. It's like, I want to do something like I, I can, and strangely enough, this is, uh, so when I first, <laughs> when I first read this poem, I was a little bit tired and I thought, and somehow my, my tired eyes that I sit and stew. And so I read the whole thing and I was like, wait, wait, it's not sit and stew, it's sit and sew. But then I was like, but in fact, that really actually works. <laughs> I was replacing by stew. And I was like, that's what she's doing, right? She, she's, she's, she's enraged and she's stewing. She can't, she, can't, um, she can't do her job and she can't help. And I also read the history of um, how right, the, the black nurses that were, were prevented from going and, and just feeling like there are men over there who aren't gonna be cared for because of their color of the skin. And there are women that are willing to go. And I think another thing I read in that, um, that little information, biographical information, um, was that they uh, they also said they didn't want to send the black nurses because they didn't they couldn't didn't have the means to separate to have different sleeping quarters for the black nurses and the white nurses. So it wasn't even that they wouldn't touch the the white nurses wouldn't touch the black bodies that they didn't even want to share um, living quarters with with these black women. And this is something really in the terms of um, we see this in the, com the commemoration practice as well is that the white women uh, and the black women, there's a story about the gold star mothers and, and how that they shipped all these white women over women on a boat uh, and they were crowded and but none of them wanted to ride on the boat with a black grieving mother. And so she rode on a boat by herself, an enormous boat by herself all the way to France because no one wanted to be on the boat with her. It's incredible. It didn't occur to me immediately to see the connection there between either the picnic and night watch or uh, either of those poems and I sit and sew. And I think that is because the picnic and night watch are both individuals thinking about what they can do as individuals. And this is a poem about what an individual could do if she were given, you know, if that were an opportunity. And it was so frustrating. One of the most powerfully written, just sort of you can you can feel the frustration in the poem. And I'm trying to think how she did that. I part of it is I, I mean it's got a really tight rhyme scheme when a lot of the other poems I think are written in blank verse. 
yeah, it's it's just it's a really tight poem. I mean, it's like it's it's, it's very well written. The, the the order is is tight, but also the um there, there's a there's a kind of passion in it because you're being told not what you are doing. You're not seeing somebody doing a thing that they want to do. You're seeing a person who can't do a thing, which is entirely relatable to everybody who reads because everybody can't do a thing. I think the style of it for me that when I look at how this achieves that sort of tightness and that frustration is she uses the dash in really powerful, interesting ways that she's always like, it feels like Emily Dickinson who's always being interrupted and just someone is almost like, stop, you can't talk, stop. You can't say that, stop. There's the, the dash makes the whole poem and she's got it, uh, about three, four uses, uh, five of it maybe in, in a very short poem. It's this sense of um, interruption um, that her life has, is, that has been interrupted by the war and that she is being interrupted from doing what she would do had she more power and agency. Yeah, and there's that the great, the, my, the best, I think the dash that's the most effective is, is the line where she says, of lesser souls whose eyes have not seen death nor learned to hold their lives, but as breath. <gasps> and it, you know, she's cut right there when she says breath. We kind of get this, right, this feeling she's kind of suffocated or she's kind of like, she's, she can't, literally she can't breathe right there. Her, her breathing has been interrupted. She's so, so filled with, right, this, this desire that's overwhelming her to take action somehow. I have a particular weak spot in my heart for stories that take on injustice. And um, yeah, I guess that's another part of it. I, I'm right, I, I didn't see that, Jennifer, until you pointed that out. But the not being able to breathe is, that's the greatest injustice of all. She's not being allowed to live. You know, she's, it's not just that she's being prevented from doing a thing. It's she's being prevented from participating in a thing that everybody says and is described by her as of existential import, you know, what could be more important than war? Um, and yet she is being forced to sit and sew and not, you know, not in a way that could be rationalized, like, but at least I'm sewing uniforms for the soldiers and they need those things. Presumably it's not that either. It's something completely, you know, it's you're useless. Your, your assistance is not needed here which, you know, which makes the whole thing seem so trivial and absurd on a certain level. Like, how, could it really be that important if she's being told to sit and sew or being prevented from doing anything but? I'm not saying that it, that it isn't that important. Obviously, it was of great importance to civilization, but there is the fact of her sitting and sewing. At the end of Cotter's poem, we have a very similar expression. Um, when she says, he, is, he ends his poem, their only crime that they dare be men. And we, it's a similar thing with her. My only crime is that I'm, my skin is this color, right? I'm alive, that I'm living and I'm breathing. And that's, the, that's, that's, the, that's, that's what's wrong is that I'm, I exist and right. And that's what Cotter says too, I exist. They don't want me to exist, right? And so I think that's, that's a common, uh, that's, that's something perhaps common. I don't know, Connie, you can answer that better than, than maybe I can, but maybe this is a common um, feeling uh, in, in African-American poetry or other, or other people who were not able to participate in the way that they, they thought fit in the war somehow. What's striking to me about Dunbar Nelson's poem is there is this complete frustration and anger. Um, and yet what I find very often um, in writings from African-Americans during the First World War is that they have this 
extraordinary, almost otherworldly ability to try to move forward um, and make the best of what are exceptionally horrific situations. So that um, Alice Dunbar Nelson was featured, she was asked to write the essay, Negro Women in War Work, which appeared in Scott's Official History of the American Negro in the World War. And in concluding that essay, in which she is, is documenting all of the injustices that in whatever war work they were given, they were paid less and that um, they weren't allowed to participate in many ways, she writes, about um, black women, she shut her eyes to past wrongs and present discomforts and future uncertainties. She stood large-hearted, strong-handed, clear-minded, splendidly capable, and did not her bit, but her best. And the world is better for her work and her worth. No matter how little they were allowed to do, she wants everyone to know that it mattered and that they were large-hearted people who had done not their bit, but their best. I find that to be amazingly powerful. Well, that, I think, having talked about this for an hour, we could easily go on for another hour or a few, but alas, time grows short, and that seems like a great place to end it, with the caveat that the beauty of, of voices like this that lie undiscovered for decades or more is that it just means that there are more voices out there. And you know, one reads the anthologies and that should be seen not as when one has read a particular anthology of you know, the canonical, like this is, this is like the, these are the things that you have to read. The work is really just starting and the places that find, you find most interesting or, or most compelling, the shapes, the fashion, the century, is really just a jumping off point. And that when you find a thing like that, it's if the only people that you've read on the subject are three or four white British or American aristocrats, you probably have a bit more reading to do. So Connie, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining the WBT and uh, really appreciated speaking with you. Thanks so much. Thank you. I can I, I just have can I just add one thing to what you said because I think it's it's worth mentioning. Um, in, during in the World War One centennial celebration, um, President Macron and some other French officials um, they slightly changed their discourse about World War One, and because in the past it always been kind of this war that was useless, that was futile, and uh, and that could have been avoided. Um, and this the, what I noticed in the past years is that there's a there's a um, emphasis on it was not in vain, right? Everyone did their part. So there's a shift. And I think this poetry helps us understand that much in a much deeper way. This shift to, it was not, yes, it was terrible. Yes, there were many, many lives, but it wasn't, it wasn't right. People did not do this in vain. Good place to stop.